Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. It's my pleasure to bring you yet another performer from our live Stand Up Tragedy Variety Night that we held at the Hackney Attic on January the 18th. Our Stand Up Tragedy audience enjoyed our wide range of acts and you can listen back to the previous podcast to hear them for yourself. You can hear spooky storytelling from Steffi Harrop, a reading from the Book of Ezekiel by James Mackay and live comedy from Gronier Maguire and Tim Andra Harkness. Last week, the tragedy was pretty comic, but this week, we're going right back to tragedy. Sometimes it can be good to share your tales of tragedy, and that's what Andy Bodle did when he told our audience of how he experienced love in his teens. Let's hear what happened. Thanks, Dave. Right. Uh, go on. Take this out. And now, is this uh, too loud, too quiet? Okay. Good. Right. Now, um, you might not guess it, but uh, I was a very happy child. I, um, I had uh, loads of friends. I had a really good relationship with my parents, uh, good grades in school. And I was passionate about loads of things, like I loved Doctor Who and Star Wars and um, writing short stories and uh, playing with my cousins, all kinds of stuff. Then came puberty. Now, um, in the, over the course of about two weeks, I underwent a complete metamorphosis, basically, um, going from being a sort of carefree, fine-featured butterfly into a greasy, sex-crazed maggot. Um, basically... Um, girls and their accursed shapely bottoms um, just dominated every waking moment of my life and most of the sleeping ones. So uh, as a result, um, by the age of 16, I, uh, I wasn't really talking to my mum and dad, um, wasn't doing so well at school, um, and uh, I didn't really have any true friends, and um, didn't really have any interests to speak of either. So um, yeah, a bit, bit of a turnaround there. Um, but I did, on the plus side, I did have one good friend, um, in my year at school, uh, smart, funny, reliable. Uh, one of the few people at school you can actually have a conversation with about something that wasn't last night's telly, you know. Um, and we used to meet up a lot, and in particular, uh, every break time, without fail, we would um, get together in the cubby hole uh, near the sports hall. Sorry, this sounds really bad. It's like, <laughs> it's just, that's where we met, um, to hang out. Um, anyway, there was only one problem with this arrangement with my friend. It's that um, I really wanted her to touch my penis. Um, now, Alison, bless her, didn't have the slightest clue about this. I'd never told her. I didn't dare tell her because I didn't want to ruin the friendship. And also, I, um, well, because she was so kind of sexy and cute and funny, she always, she, she always had a boyfriend, so um, there was no opportunity. Anyway, uh, uh, towards the end of the fifth form, which I believe the young people now call uh, year 11, um, <laughs> I, she, she broke up with her lumbering oaf, and um, so she was free. And uh, the week, about a week after, I was walking her home from school, and, um, and we had a little kiss. So, like, I was made up. It was like, finally, uh, true happiness was within my grasp. And then the next day at school, um, in geography, she blanked me, um, just completely avoided me. And uh, I went to the cubby hole by the sports hall at break time, and she wasn't there. Um, hunted high and low for her all, all over school, and eventually tracked her down after school. And she said, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I've been avoiding you, but last night, that was a mistake. 
So um, the next day was a Saturday, and uh, every Saturday my parents used to go to the pub. So they went out, leaving me alone in front of the TV. And I think I was watching Saturday Live, if anyone remembers that late night Channel 4, terrible comedy program. Um, anyway, I sat there and I was contemplating life without my Alison, and um, I came to a decision. So I got up and I started searching around the house. But I couldn't, for the life of me, find any rope. I guess, I guess Dad wasn't, you know, a handy kind of guy. Um, anyway, so there weren't any rope. Um, but then I thought, well, maybe, maybe a tie will do it. And he's often see, you know, tie. But this was the 80s. So all my ties were skinny ties. Um, and therefore probably not, you know, able to hold my weight. So, um, but then I had a brainwave. Um, in the laundry room, we had um, some curtains that were held up with net curtain wire. Do you know those sort of cables? I thought, that'll probably do the trick. So I took the curtains down, um, went into the garage, um, put it over the beam, put a chair under the beam, and then stood on the chair um, and tried to make a noose out of curtain net wire. I don't know if anyone's tried to do that, but um, it's not very flexible. It took me about 15 minutes. <laughs> so anyway, eventually I fashioned something that I thought would do the trick, put it around my neck, and um, there was no saving phone call, unfortunately. Uh, so said my goodbyes and kicked away the chair. Now, um, if there's anyone here who's remotely familiar, uh, familiar with material science, um, you're probably aware exactly how curtain net wire behaves under stress. Um, so instead of putting me out of my misery, um, it tightened around my throat, but then it stretched and lowered me gently to the floor. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I, I was too embarrassed to try again that night, so I just went back to watching Saturday Live. Um, <laughs> And, yeah, um, I, I never told anyone about that attempt, and my mum never noticed that the laundry room curtains had developed a bit of a sag. So um, life went on for a bit. Um, and over the next months, uh, Alison and I became much closer, and I used to start going around to her house after school every day. And one day I turned up, and she wasn't there, but her mum said, come in anyway, have a cup of tea. So as I sat down, um, she lit me a Rothmans and said, um, she does love you, you know. She just hasn't realised it yet. Bless her. So, um, emboldened with this new information, the following week, I got Alison to a private place and I asked her out. And she um, looked at me for a few seconds and then said, uh, don't be silly. And she laughed. Um, so, anyway, the next day was, was another Saturday. And this was in the kind of the middle of the sixth form, uh, middle of the lower sixth. And I said to mum and dad at lunchtime, right, I'm just off into town um, to do my regular shifts at the shoe shop. But when I got into town, instead of turning left to go to true form, I turned right uh, to go to the Wiltshire Hotel, which is the tallest building in Swindon. Um, anyway, so I get to the Wiltshire Hotel, and uh, the lobby's completely deserted. There's no one around, so uh, I'm free to go. So I, I went up the stairs. I don't know why I took the stairs. Why I thought I needed exercise on my last day on this earth. Um, anyway, I took the stairs all the way up to the eighth floor. And then I, a lot of the windows are generally shut for, for good reason, because I think this kind of thing might happen a lot, you know. Uh, but eventually I found one that was open, and I climbed out and sat on the ledge. And I wanted a couple of minutes contemplation before I took the plunge. So I, um, I lit up a cigarette, a Marlboro Light, I don't really like Rothmans, and, um, and pressed play on my Walkman. Because um, I had a, had a Walkman, obviously, as you did then. Um, and in my Walkman, at the time, was my favourite album, uh, which was um, No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Um, I, I know there are a lot of embarrassing details in this story, but that, 
that's probably the biggest one. Um, so I thought, okay, well, what I'll do is I'll jump at the end of this song. So I played the song and it came to an end. And then I thought, oh, hang on, no, no, I really like the next one. <laughs> so sat there and, and listened to, to the next one going, um, and then that one finished. And then, oh, no, the next one's my favourite, Inside Out. I can't jump before Inside Out. Um, and anyway, and then thus passed the entire album. And then by the time it finished, I realised I probably didn't want to die right now anyway. So I climbed back in, walked to the shoe shop, and was docked an hour's pay for being 15 minutes late. Um, Anyway, so I didn't tell anyone about that attempt either. Um, and then the months passed by, and um, uh, during this time, Alison and I became, we were, I think we were pretty much best friends by now. We spent almost all our spare time together, except for when she was shagging her various, various boyfriends. Um, and, um, but once again, she became single at just the right time, because uh, mum and dad said I could have a summer barbecue. They'd never let me have a party. But they said, we'll go to the pub. You can have the house, you can have booze, because we were 17 by now. Um, so they did this, and I was allowed 25 friends. And for some reason, I wasn't that popular at school, but for some reason, all the cool kids wanted to come to this party. Well, all the cool kids and Andy Rogers, the gurning, preening, posing sleaze bag with a kink in his nose and badly permed hair. And, um, but it went swimmingly for the first couple of hours. Like, uh, nothing got broken, uh, everyone was enjoying themselves. And after about half an hour, um, Alison and I found ourselves alone in the dining room. And um, she took my hand, and we had our first proper French kiss. I was like, yes. My first, my first well, I think my, technically my second French kiss, but even so, my first kiss was a French kiss with someone I fancied. And um, <laughs> we, uh, so, yes, but we parted because I was the host, and I had to make sure everyone was okay. And then after a couple of hours, I noticed I hadn't seen her for a while. So I looked um, in, all the, in the kitchen and the, and the lounge and the bedroom and I couldn't find her. And eventually um, there was only one room where she could be. So I threw open the door of the spare bedroom. And sure enough, there she was in the arms of Andy Rogers. So I, I actually stayed very cool that night. I um, didn't overreact. I just went back out to the party, quite calmly closed the door and uh, made sure everyone else was okay. I overreacted the next night. Um, because the next night I was out with my friend Nick. Now, Nick was quite a bit older than me. He was um, about 25. And uh, he, was, well, he was a lad, possibly even a yob. I don't know. Um, but he, he had a good heart. He was a nice bloke, but he, he liked to live dangerously. And um, we went out and we drank. And I think I drank, safe to say, more than I'd ever drunk before in my life. And at two in the morning, we find ourselves at this party um, in a village in the middle of nowhere. And I said to Nick, said to Nick look, we should probably get a taxi back. He said, no, don't be silly, I'll give you a lift. So we get in his 25-year-old Triumph Herald, pull away, and we're about halfway home when he just pulls the car over to one side. I said, well, what are you doing? He says, I think you need a driving lesson. Okay, well, you know, at the time, I think my logic was something like, well, okay, I'm really drunk, but he's even drunker. And secondly, I have got my driving test in a few weeks, and... Um, Thirdly, um, it's 3 a.m. in the middle of nowhere. We hadn't seen another car the whole time. So, like, we're not really any harm to anyone. So what, what harm can it do? So we swap seats. And it takes me a while to find first gear because it's a Triumph Herald. And um, I don't know if anyone's driven one, but they're nightmarish. Um, and I eventually find first gear and start bunny hopping into motion. And at this exact moment, a police car comes the other way. <laughs> so um, Nick panics. I panic. We can see the copper slowing down to turn around. Um, so Nick just shouts, like, just 
turn right down here, because he knows there's like a, a maze of country lanes and we can hopefully lose him down there. Um, I still haven't managed to find second gear, even though we're now doing 40 miles an hour. <laughs> so Nick shouts, turn left, turn right. Um, and I'm doing pretty well for my third driving lesson, I think. Um, but then, uh, you know, eventually, you know, you have a scared and drunk 17-year-old uh, at the wheel of an unfamiliar car. Something's going to go wrong. And uh, at the next junction, Nick decided, to, he said, turn left. Um, and then he changed his mind. He said, no, right. So obviously, I tried to do both. Um, which meant that we drove at 40 miles an hour straight through a dry stone wall. Now, um, I was wearing a seatbelt, but he wasn't. So um, he hit the windscreen and came back in. And he wasn't, you know, he was immediately, he was fully compostmented. So he immediately just sat there and said, you run away, I'll say it was me. Because he was the older guy, and because I was terrified, I just did what he said and I ran. And it was about four miles home. So I arrived home. And then as I got in the door, I looked down and I was covered in blood. Um, it was Nick's blood, but I don't think I really realised that at this point. And that's the last thing I remember um, until about three hours later. Uh, and then I woke up and I was in hospital and my parents are looking down over me and my wrists are all bandaged up. And um, as far as we can work out, uh, what happened is that I, th I think we, I saw the blood, went into shock, freaked out, ran into the kitchen, rifled through the drawers, took out all the sharpest knives and then ran off into the woods and started trying to saw through my wrists. Um, fortunately, because um, I'm an idiot, I was sawing them the wrong way. So um, I didn't actually lose that much blood. But um, anyway, so I was okay. Nick had lost his two front teeth, but otherwise he was okay. Uh, the car was a write-off. The wall was a write-off. Um, the police were kind of nice in that they presented me with a list of road offensive as, as long as my arm, but they didn't breathalyze me. So, um, And yes, well, uh, so the, the police were quite good about it. And mum and dad were actually really good about the accident. They helped help me, you know, make everything better and, and they lent me the money that I had to earn it back obviously to pay them back to repair the wall and the car and the, pay the fines um, but they weren't quite so hot on the suicide attempt <laughs> um, being middle class I don't really think you know I don't think there's any articles in the Daily Mail on what to say to your son uh, if he's just trying to top himself so uh, there was no big chat uh, there was no offer of therapy or anything no what mum and dad thought the best thing to do uh, would be uh, to address my suicidal tendencies, would be to send me to my auntie's house in Surrey for a week. <laughs> so, um, but weirdly, it kind of worked. Because I think when I was at my auntie's house, it reminded me of my childhood. And it kind of brought back all those memories of having friends and, and good grades and conversations with my family and all these things I hadn't had for years. And um, when I realised what I missed most... Was, was having an interest, was, having, was being passionate about something other than passion. So when I got back home, I kind of launched myself back into life. I, um, I signed up with a local young people's charity organisation. I uh, became a singer in a band. Um, I joined the local Amdram troupe and started doing theatre every weekend. And after about two weeks, uh, sorry, not two weeks, that would be a remarkable transformation. Um, <laughs> after about two months, um, I was so busy and so connected with people, and, and so kind of involved in life again, that I actually started to care a little bit less about Alison. Um, and it was obviously at that point that she decided that she liked me and, and went out with me. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, we went out for a year, um, and it was great, and then I dumped her. <laughs> um, I, I suppose, uh, if there's any lessons to be learned from this tonight, it 
listen to more Phil Collins. I don't know. Thank you. Stand Up Tragedy, we love to ask our audiences what they thought of the acts. So let's hear what they had to say about Andy's story. The story about the guy in a suicide attempt. I like how it was tragedy, but then had a really uplifting ending to like, so everyone didn't feel too bleak at the end. Very poignant. It was, uh, yeah, it was a good story to listen to. Strange how we managed to make such a deep, personal thing come across quite humorous. It's not the sort of thing that you'd imagine going out for a night's entertainment to, to listen to. Yeah, I've never really listened to anything like that before. It's really good. Andy is a regular storyteller at Spark London, where people tell true stories live, and that happens on the first three Mondays of every month at different venues across London. Check out www.sparklondon.com for more details about that. Love is still on Andy's mind, and he writes a blog about it called womanology.co.uk There he writes about his life and his feelings about love, sex and women through the lens of the science of dating. Subscribe to the blog or follow him at underscore womanology underscore on Twitter and keep up to date with what Andy's doing. While you're at it, why not follow Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter too? We're at Stand Up For Tragedy. We'll post news about previous and current performers as well as keeping you informed about what's going on at Stand Up Tragedy. Follow our journey up to the Edinburgh Festival as part of the Free Fringe. And we're not just on Twitter, we're also on Facebook. You can find us, you can like us, you can be our friend. We've got a new lineup of acts booked in to perform at the Dog Star in Brixton on Thursday the 28th of March. So come along and join the tragedy. Go along to our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk to find out more about that and other stand-up tragedy related things. And if you've liked this podcast, there's still more to come. Subscribe to it using iTunes or SoundCloud or stream it on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, which you can get for free for your smartphone. I've been Dave, your host, and for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. <laughs>